and welcome to episode two of All Things Wise and Wonderful, an animal welfare podcast. And for those of you tuning in for the first time, this new podcast is about all things animal welfare and veterinary. Before we go on, I must introduce obviously my co-host, Hen. Hello, Hen. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. You? Uh, yes, it's been a good couple of weeks since we did the last one. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I'm okay, thank you. This week, uh, we are, have a special guest uh, and we're going to be talking all things grooming, uh, including welfare needs, regulation of groomers, grooming competitions, including the programme Pooch Perfect, which uh, myself and this guest were both involved in. We'll talk about, about image objectification of dogs and, the, um, and all that goes with that. So without further ado... Let me introduce our special guest, Stuart Simons. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is lovely. So I should I do really... like a nice, a nice little chat on a Saturday evening. Well, quite yes, and I should really introduce you as dog groomer, actor, and dancer. Which which order do you do you like those in? Well, it depends what I'm doing. It depends <laughs> whichever one, whichever one I'm working at at the time. That's the order. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, if I'm right, you are the co-founder of the Groomer Spotlight. You have two grooming salons and you hold a master's certification with NAPCG, which is the National Association of Professional Creative Groomers. And you are currently the only certifier in Europe for the association. Is that correct? That's correct. Does that make I'm very you proud the... I am about that too. So does that make you the most qualified groomer in the UK? Definitely not. <laughs> oh, really? makes me... <laughs> it makes me the most qualified creative groomer in the UK. Right, okay. So someone that tell, yeah, so I know you, about Can you tell us what, what what do you mean by creative groomer there? Like Yes. So the NAPCG is an organization that was founded by a woman called Bullet Brown, who is quite inspirational. You should probably look her up if anyone's listening. Um and she is an American groomer who competed years and years ago with bad products. And whilst she was doing that, she realised, actually, because at the time, people didn't necessarily realise that these products were bad. And she realised at the time that they were bad and she thought, I need to do something about it. I'm going to do some research. And she really looked into the science behind the products that these creative groomers were using. And so she created an organisation that is solely for the safety of dogs that are groomed creatively for the use in media. Okay. Oh, there you go. Does that make wow. sense? So if there's, yeah, so if there's any colour, if there's any colour involved, or if they're shaped in a specific way, then it's been looked at by the NAPCG, and we can generally say what's safe and what's not to use. Okay, so it's almost like a licensed product type type thing. It's just it's just about science, really. Yeah. It's, it's it's all about yeah. It's it's knowing what's gonna hurt a dog and what's not. And you know, in America, there's a quite a um well there was quite a lot of groomers that were using very liquid to clean dogs with yeah um they called it dawn dish soap dish soap over there and that was quite common practice for them to use that in a in a salon and so i think that the napcg called it out excellent well we'll talk more about some of those stuff and some of the products when we start talking yeah well actually jody mentioned that the other week because you asked me the other day whether uh you know people still use fairy liquid on horses 
Yes. So um, I, I found out that it's it's not harmful to horses uh, directly, and that's actually quite commonly used, especially for their manes and their tails. Yeah. I mean, it depends. It really depends on the use of what of whatever you're using it for. I mean, in, in extreme circumstances, I can understand why someone might reach for that. Um, you know, oil slicks or whatever. But yeah, exactly. you know, in general, general practice in a grooming salon, there's hundreds and thousands of amazing products that are available to dogs and cats these days. So yeah, we don't do it. <laughs> Better products than fairy liquid for well, their dogs. There, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So before we, before, we, before we dive into the whole uh, grooming world, I'm going to question you about your pet history like we are going to do with everybody. So um, let's start with the pets you have now, Stuart. So I have got a standard poodle called Ralph, who's 10, and he's the love of my life. Oh. I've got, I mean, they're all the love of my life. I have my favourites. <laughs> I've got, I've got a, a little Bichon Shih Tzu called Maggie, who's just the love of my life i've got <laughs> molly who is a bichon frise and i've got nelson who's a maltese bichon they're all white and i'm always being called a doggy racist although it was never on purpose it was just one of those things and nelson hasn't been very well recently has he no he had a really he's 14 and he had a really bad seizure last sunday and I've, he's never had a seizure before and it was really it was such a tricky thing to deal with because obviously I've been taught about how to deal with seizures if they happen in salons etc um but when it happens to your own dog and and it starts to go on for longer than you know is okay and then the reaction after the seizure isn't quite what you were expecting it to be uh it, it was just the most traumatic experience and it made me realize that um you know no matter how in control you think you are <laughs> you're never really completely in control and and you, you, something has to switch and you've got to you know put your big boy pants on and and try and sort it out and that, it was really hard because I actually this sounds awful but it was going on for so long and he was screaming and I actually thought to myself either stop seizing or please pass away yeah. because it got to the point where I was like, I, I, you can't be in, you can't be in this pain. This can't be, this is so distressing. So, um, but luckily it stopped and we got him to the vets and now he's fast on track to becoming much better. And what did it turn Aww. out to be? He had, he's always had, um, which is, this is really strange. He's always had, I can't remember, it's water on the brain. So it's um, hydrocephalus yeah. and he had it from birth and which we didn't know but the weird thing is that my mum's got hydrocephalus that's just recently been <laughs> that's just recently been diagnosed and it, it affects her walking I mean she doesn't have seizures or anything like that but uh she actually said to me on the phone do you think I gave it to him and I was like no it's ridiculous <laughs> oh, that's so Karen? sweet bless her <laughs> oh, zoonotic, no, it? bless her heart Oh, that's the sweetest thing I've ever heard. Hydrocephalus, yeah. Do you know, I think there are so many dogs out there, actually, that we probably are unknown that don't, you know, we don't know that they have hydrocephalus that, that do. Um, being a, a, a new pug owner, I'm sure she's probably got hydrocephalus. It's, you know, the anatomy of the, the brain and how they drain the fluid from their, their head. And once the anatomy of the head starts shifting to a slightly obscure shape um it's really quite common so uh, chihuahuas very common that sort of thing so um oh that's a real shame but i'm glad that um glad that he's on the road to recovery 
I think the tricky thing is, is that he's 14. So when you, you get a dog to that age and, you know, he's looking a little bit frailer than he was a year ago. And you do start to think, am I just kicking the can down the road? When we got to the vets, I was honestly thinking that they're going to say, you know, there's nothing we can do. And they actually said, we don't know what we're treating. So he needs an MRI. And the yeah. decision to, to go, is it the right thing to do to drive him the two hours yeah. from this vet surgery to the Royal College the Royal College of Vets to um to get his MRI and have that stress or should I just say my goodbyes now and give him his dignity and I honestly found it really really hard because my heart loves him and wants to keep him alive as long as possible but the other the alternative was am I going to see him that happen again? And is that going to happen to him again? It's going to be so stressful. Do we want that to happen again? Or should we just cut our losses? And, and actually, it occurred to me that actually neither was wrong. If I had have put him to sleep at that moment, it would have been the right thing to do at the time. But I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad that we, we went to the MRI you and we, we always, got yeah, the right... You might have always questioned yourself as well, wouldn't you? Not well, yeah, but although you would never know because I was just so concerned for him. And yeah. I suppose either way, I would never know, would I? Yeah. And these, are the, these are the conversations that I have with people every day. Um, and and you never get the same answer, obviously, from different people walking in different lifestyles. Um, how, and they how, Ken, how many of them ask you, what would you do? Oh, everybody asks what I would do. <laughs> Um, that must be so hard, Hen. Yeah, well, do you know, sometimes, actually, I'm a, I'm a really honest person. And um, I, I think professionally, we're told not to answer, what would you do? But I do answer, what would I do? Um, because say, for instance, say, for instance, I went in there with my 14 year old dog, and I didn't have any money. Mm. You know, that makes a huge difference. I would, I would say goodbye. You know, because yeah, I wouldn't actually, be able to, you know, to cost... go to the Royal College. And... Yeah. And we had um, we had a, a, an insurance policy that we that was called the superior insurance policy, and and the reality was it wasn't anything but superior. And you know it's ridiculous because years ago I was the insurance broker for a little while, and so you'd think that I might have even looked at the policy, but <laughs> oh no, it said superior, so it must be superior. We touched on this covered... last week. We touched on this last week too because I was. You know, yeah, from from my animal welfare background, you'd think as well that I would kind of look at properly at insurance policies. And what we felt we got a bit stitched up with ours uh, with Welly. Um, but I think it's something that we're going to talk about in future pods is insurance and actually what's good and bad out there. And is it worth it as your dog gets past 10 years old? Because, you know, um, well, that's go thing. through the roof and, and obviously... Um, treatment is very expensive quite rightly treatment is expensive you've got experts who are dealing with your animal but it's yeah there's some loopholes in there that we don't all notice and that's the it's question different. that i often ask people i always say that you know when they say about insurance and they've got a slightly older animal i just say well say for instance your dog does get hit by a car do you want to are you going to be doing do you want to do the fracture repairs or would you say no and if they say no we wouldn't do it then I said, well, there's no point in your insurance because that's why you've got it. So, you know, it does make a huge difference, but um, every, people's circumstances are so different. So there's never a right or wrong answer to these as long as the animal isn't suffering. Um, it's a good, it's a really good point though, because I had um, a standard poodle 10 years ago before I got Ralph um, called Alfie. 
and he we got we went we took him for a walk one day and he blacked out and collapsed and I was mm. like what the hell he's a, pu- a puppy it was like four four months five months old and so we took him to the vet and the vet that I spoke to said he needs to be put to sleep straight away literally the bedside manner was absolutely awful and I was like what that's my four month old puppy that I've just paid thousands for, like and I love and they said no he's he's uh, he's got something wrong with him he needs to be put to sleep and I was like well that's not happening I'm going for a second opinion so I took him to another vet and he had cardiomyopathy yeah so he had an enlarged heart yeah. and so his that his chances of surviving a year were really slim and so me and my husband James were obviously absolutely distraught and we hadn't taken our pet plan insurance out I would have sold my house for that dog because I just wanted him to get better and it was a learning curve and we went to this really amazing vet in the end who you know we, we did go to the Royal College and we we, we did all the, the tests and everything else and we got to five thousand pounds and we started to you know max out our credit cards and it started to get really really hard and then this vet pulled me into a room one day and said look Stuart he's not going to get better and there's a point where you have to say you 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 can't you can't fix it even with the amount of money you've got to go you've got to make peace with the fact that you're going to have to say goodbye and say no at some point and so me and James decided that we agreed that if if it hurt if he ever was hurt and or he, he visibly showed signs of distress then we would do it and that's what happened and we did it and it was the most traumatic thing that's ever happened in my life and he ended up dying at eight months old but that vet telling me you know there is a point where you can stop and say actually that's too much money now and it's true because you have to look at their longevity and we look to vets to tell us what the chances are and that's how we make our decisions I suppose as 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 pet owners and people that don't know better yeah. Well, it's good to hear that Nelson has got at least a few more uh, months, years left in him anyway. So Yay! Um, Go, Nelson! So going right back <laughs> to the beginning, then, did you have pets as you were growing up, Stuart? Oh, God, I was a nightmare. I used to just pick up anything. <laughs> I had sticking sets. <laughs> I had... Uh, <laughs> I had... There was, two, there was two mice that lived in our back garden called Mickey and Doppo. I had... Um, guinea pigs, Dolly and Polly. I had a rabbit called Thumper and another one called Brain Damage, but I don't know why it was called Brain Damage. Weird. And then one day I was, uh, I also had dogs. So from a very young age, I had a dog, a greyhound crossed with a German Shepherd called, uh, German Shepherd called Hoagie. And this is a quite an interesting story. So when I was young, it jumped, uh, I was very, very, I was like four or five and it jumped over the fence and I went after it and crawled through a hole in the fence and Hoagie got run over and killed. This is a very depressing podcast, isn't it? Sorry. It's totally my fault. I promise I'll make it more cheerful. Uh, And the next day I couldn't walk. And so for about six months, I couldn't walk and I was hospitalized and they were doing tests and they thought I had polio. It was in the seventies and uh, it turns out to be shock because I'd seen my dog get run over, and it was just how my body dealt oh, with the wow. shock of seeing it at that, that age, yeah. Like an episode of House. <laughs> no, it wasn't lupus. <laughs> lupus, it's always lupus. <laughs> yeah, so that happened. 
And then I had um, English Spring Spaniels. So I had one called Wally, one called Henry, one called Chester. Um, and then, um, and yeah, so uh, um, Henry I rescued, uh, Wally we got from a breeder, uh, and Chester we rescued. So that's sort of my history with dogs. I've always had dogs and lots of pets all my life. And actually, I had some chinchillas for a while as well, because... I used to do amateur dramatics in this hall and the hall was next to a Thai restaurant. This is another awful story. Actually, it wasn't awful because they were fine. But one day we were in a break and all of a sudden I saw something at the corner of my eye. I was having a cigarette outside in the days that smoking was acceptable-ish. And it was a chinchilla that had escaped from the Thai restaurant. And there was oh 10 God. of them. There was 10 of them all running around the sort of, sort of outside area where we smoked so i rounded them all up and rehomed them all that's amazing <laughs> well at least you know what a chinchilla is my husband is also a vet can i just say he's a vet i don't know if i should say this this is terrible isn't it um he's a yeah, we might be talking to him on the next podcast maybe <laughs> He's, he's a horse vet and he did a little stint um, covering a, a small animal clinic and somebody brought in a chinchilla and, um, <laughs> and um, was it a chinchilla? It must have been and and apparently he looked at it and he wasn't 100% sure what it was so he went out and said to um, said to the nurse what are those tiny little kangaroo like animals? <laughs> That's definitely a chinchilla, though. Or a daegu. It could be a daegu, though. They're even they smaller. Like chinchillas. And he was like, ah, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> oh, I used to love, we used to, our chin, chinchilla was called Chinny. Really imaginative. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to love watching him have his sand baths because they have sand baths. And they, they go, they roll really, really quickly in these beautiful oh. sand baths. Oh, bless chin, Chinny. It was lovely. So you have basically um, yeah, been animals all your life, really. Yes. So I guess you were always going to eventually come back to a career of animals. So Because you, you basically had a career as an actor-stroke dancer. Um, yeah, so my, my career started as a dancer, pretty much. Right. And, then, and I was really lucky. I worked with loads. And, and then it sort of went into the dancer-singer, then dancer-singer-actor. And... And actually, that's sort of why I decided to become a dog groomer, because I was working in the West End or working on tour. And I used to have quite long breaks in between working. And I used to have to go and work in the box office, which I really enjoyed working in the box office. You know, the booths in Leicester Square. Yeah. I used to work in those. And uh, I used to cycle in and cycle out. And I used to think to myself, you know, there's got to be something that I love as much as acting and of course it's animals so um i won a competition have i told you about the competition have i ever no. told you jody about the competition mm -hmm. so I, uh, I as i said i used to cycle to and from leicester square and i used to listen to capital fm on my earbuds this is a long time ago it's about 2007 2006 and they used to do this um name game where it was, it was called the london eye test and you had to name three celebrities that were saying the word I. So they would say I, I, I in a row like that. Right. And then you had to guess who they were. And this game went on for months and months and months. And you had to register to play. So um, I registered to play and then forgot all about it. And then months and months later, I got a phone call out of the blue when I was at the box office. And they said, hello, Mr. Simons, you're through to play the London Eye Test on Capital FM at three o'clock. Do you want to play? And I was like, 
yeah, I'd love to. Completely forgotten all about it. I hadn't listened to any of it. And there was only one name left to get. And she said, you've got half an hour. You can look through the names that have been said and uh, and obviously have a guess and see if you see if you win. So I was like, okay. And I sat in my little office and I looked at the names and I just couldn't think of anyone that hadn't been said. I mean, there was thousands of names on there. And then the name just dropped into my head. I just thought I'm going to say Jennifer Saunders. And I looked on the list and she hadn't been said. And I thought, well, I might as well say it because it's, it's not on the list. <laughs> Why not? So I got through to the player and they were like, hi, Stuart, welcome to the London Eye Test. So what's, what's your guess? And I was like, oh, I think it's Jennifer Saunders. And then suddenly this voice went, you've won £66,000. Wow. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> no. So as that an actor. To people. That's amazing. Well, no, it doesn't. And, and I, as an actor, I was always skinned, never had any money. It was just a nightmare. And all of a sudden, I just thought, oh, my God, I've just got rid of the debt that I've had. The, you know, the stress of having to make my rent this month has just gone. And so obviously I took all the people from the box office out for drinks and uh, and I spent all this money on my credit card and then I had to wait for the money to come through. And it one you know, month passed. All these people passed, now ringing another... up to it going, hold on, you didn't take me for a drink. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the worst thing was is that the money didn't come through for months. And I was like, so skin. Oh, no. And I put up, and I suddenly start to think, oh no, it said it's a con, but it wasn't. It did come through. And I used the money to retrain as a groomer. Wow. That Excellent. is amazing. I absolutely love that. So the grooming training took about, I think it takes about six weeks to do the initial introduction. And then you, at the time, the, the qualification was in two parts. So you had to do your level, your level two city and guilds, which was like your bathing, your prepping. And then you had to go on to your level three. And it was the only the first part of the level three. And then you were in, um, you were told to go away and work if you could, to get some experience. And then you had to come back a year later and do your sort of uh, assessed scissor grooms or your, your breed standard cuts. And that's what I did. Except what I did was, whereas, whereas most people would go to a salon to get the experience, I opened a salon and hired a really good groomer so that I called the shots and they <laughs> taught me how to do it. Nice. <laughs> because I had the money because I had the money to be able to go, okay, I can waste, you know, 10 grand or whatever yeah. on this so that I can really try and hone my skills. Brilliant. And that's how it worked. But that's amazing because you really took a gamble there. Because although yes, you had the money, a lot of people would play it safe and go, I'm just gonna go and make sure that I really want to do this or that I'm any good at it and I, I I don't know, I might go and buy something else or you know, but you really or, went for it. That's or amazing. go and work in someone else's salon and see if you like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well the thing is is that is my that's one hundred percent me though, Hen. I'm literally like if I've got an idea, my friends always make uh, laugh at me because I'll say to them, Oh, I really fancy, you know, buying a house in Spain or or buying a camper van, or renting, I don't know, something out. And within the phone call finishing, I've usually done it. I'm that sort of person. Amazing. Well, good. Good for you. So when it comes to the grooming side of stuff, we'll talk about the welfare needs, because I think, obviously, you, Stuart, and Hen probably have quite close relationships from a point of view of the groomer and the vet and the things that yeah. you see within that. So... Before we get on to creative and everything with it, what are the biggest problems that you see as a groomer in your salons? 
for me, the worst, the, the, the biggest problem that we find in our salons is the people that don't brush their dogs. It's literally as simple as that. It's so hard. And actually managing expectations as well. I think that, you know, with the best one in the world, we all, we all want to look like, the, you know, I want to look like Brad Pitt. But I can only work with this. But, you know, all humans are different, just like all dogs are different. So we have, what we need to do is try our hardest to make the dog that's presented to us the best that it can possibly look, rather than looking at crafts and looking at magazines and, you know, online articles to the perfect specimen and then have and, and trying to make our our owners understand that even though, yes, you've got a Bichon, yes, you've got a Maltese, yes, you've got a Schnauzer, you're probably not going to get that end result because the actual anatomy is different. So it's just about expert. I think that's the hardest thing. And uh, overbreeding, kind of this, this, there's so many things I want to say, but I think the most important thing really is expectation for an owner and brushing. And when should that start? And now obviously I've got that, I know that answer, but we're in a puppy boom at the minute, so. Yeah, yeah. so for me, as soon as the dog's had uh, its last vaccination and it's safe from the vet, so the vet's giving it the okay, it should come straight, it should be the next stop. <laughs> Yeah. We should have a dog in the salon as soon as it's safe for the dog once it's vaccinated. And then I, in my personal opinion, and some other professional groomers would disagree with me, but personally, no matter what the breed, unless it's a hand strip, I would say monthly until it's six months old to have just a feet, face and bum trim so that it's low, um, low handling but still having to experience all the sights, sounds and smells of the salon. And then at six months, they'll be so conditioned to that salon environment that we can safely give them a haircut. I completely agree with everything you've just said. Yeah. Yay! Yeah, absolutely. And we have the same sort of thing. So, for instance, we... Um, we advise, say, for instance, monthly worming up until six months, and uh, which is scientifically based. But the other advantage for that sort of thing is, is that we can get the puppy into the practice and weigh them every month. It starts to mean that they get accustomed to the practice, to being handled by the vet, being put on the scales and all of those little things. So it's not just about getting them wormed, it's about getting them acclimatized um, and desensitized to everything. So it's, you know, it's a big learning curve. That's the big, that's the gap, isn't it? That's the learning learning curve um, time. So it, it, I completely it's, agree. It's so frustrating. We had a dog come in this evening actually, and it's a cockapoo and it's a really hairy cockapoo. I know you can have lots of I'm not uh, different types. About this a minute, but go on. It was very, very hairy, and, and we booked it in at five o'clock for a feet face bum. I knew that it hadn't been to us before. So generally, when it comes to a cockapoo that's eight months old, I would always book in for a feet face bum first, because I want to know what the history is before I do anything. And they came in, and this dog was solid matted, hadn't been brushed for ages. And, you know, we have to look at the animal welfare, and we have to look at, you know, the, the fact that the dog can't have a frightening experience because a dog with a hair bearing coat will be with us every six weeks. It will see us, as long as it's healthy, it will see us more than it will see a vet. So to bring it in to traumatize it every six weeks is so unfair. So I'm not gonna put a dog through pain in my salon. I'll cut it off 
I'll shave it off and you can start again because until as an owner, you can show me that you understand that dog's coat, I'm yeah. not going to put it through hell. And I think this is, this is really interesting. There's a real trend for the poodle cross, right, of whatever it is because these hypoallergenic dogs, okay? But what comes with that is, is the dog that doesn't shed is, well, it just continually grows then. So actually there's, there's, a, there's a continued need for it to have far more grooming and every dog needs grooming, I know, but when you know, when you're talking six to eight weeks to, to have a, a, a proper groom, that is a commitment. Now, I was talking to uh, somebody the other day and uh, basically we were talking about a dog that had been rehomed from a rehoming centre, a puppy, that had been matched to these people. They've been matched with a cockapoo. And I was like, so I was like, all oh, right, well, did they speak to him about, um, about the grooming needs of that dog? Oh, I don't know. I was like, because uh, uh, we spoke in the last pod about the whole rehoming from animal centres and how they make their decisions over who's an appropriate owner and all of this kind of stuff. But actually, like when we got Welly at 10 weeks old, he's a Bedlington cross. And it turned out he, has a, he had a Bedlington coat, really. Um, you wouldn't know it from the pictures because I didn't know how to deal with a Bedlington coat. <laughs> and we grew a lot. Oh, I probably, I, I wouldn't have chosen a dog with a coat like that. It has his advantages is he, you know, he never got fleas and he never got ticks or anything like that because his coat was that kind of wiry and nothing was going to get in there. But, you know, he probably needed grooming, certainly a proper brush every day. And I put my hands up, I didn't brush him every day and he didn't get as much brushing as he did. So much work involved in that type of coat and the, going to the poodle coat is the same isn't it they are they're actually an incredible amount of work so it's not just taking on a puppy it's not just taking on a dog it's taking on a whole workload and i think that so many people go oh well i'm going to go for a poodle cross because they don't shed and it's going to keep my house clean yes but have you actually got the time and the commitment to put into grooming that animal and, and you think- can you know for me i do think you can have a cockapoo and um, have it short and that's okay as long as you understand that you're going to have it cut short you know we, we haven't got a magic wand the, the groomers always want to do the best for the dog uh, but the last thing they want to do is the best for the owner unless it matches what's the best for the dog so for me it's it's really it is like a bridge trying to because lots of owners would say oh the groom is just lazy he doesn't want to brush that dog out but that's not the case the owner the owner doesn't realize that we don't want the dog to have a bad time and that's the reality of it we will shave it off because it's matted it's not our fault that it's matted it's yours because you haven't brushed it and hopefully from this you'll learn that the next time you'll brush your dog i've got a um quite a rule at my salon that you know i'm ever so nice and i'm very amenable and i'll give you two chances (laughs) but on the third chance you kind of go you know i can't tell you again this isn't okay for the dog so you know i'll start to get the um and it's really it's really interesting go back to your point of as soon as it's had its second vaccination and it's in it's free to go i get it to the salon and i think you know even from before that as soon as you've got it in your hands it's teaching that dog about grooming it about starting to brush any dog like that because there's that fear that when they get to seven months seven to nine months old and they talk about this kind of 
fear response in puppies is when they learn the fear things that are going to scare mm. them. If if you're taking it to a salon for the first time at that period, or you're introducing it to a hairdryer or a pair of clippers then, and you and it's wrong, you get it wrong, right? And the groomer gets it wrong because they're not qualified, and we'll go on to that in a minute, but um, they're not qualified. Actually, that can damage for the rest of the dog's life. Now, if you then leave that beyond that nine months and it never does it, I mean, we couldn't do it with Welly. I remember he was, um, somebody offered to groom him when we had him in boarding and he was probably beyond a year old then. And I said, oh yeah, it'd be good. Yeah, let's get him groomed before the summer. Took him in and he came back and he had like weird kind of angled cut, you know, kind of grooms around his snout, which looked quite right. And, you know, he was cut short Charming. and that was great. And I said, knowing what he was like, and, and obviously you met Welly, but knowing what it was like, I said, how how was he then? Was he, was he okay? Oh, he was absolutely fine. Yeah, he was brilliant. Oh, brilliant. Well, maybe I'll give a go at clipping him myself then next time. Oh, God. And, God. and the next time, yeah, the next time he needed a cut, I, I had a pair of clippers and I turned them on and he, he was nowhere to be seen. He would not go anywhere near clippers. And I was thinking, I do not know how they did that in a way that he wasn't absolutely, because he was petrified of everything, Welly. <laughs> so that would have taken a lot of training to get him. I did him all by scissors and he was brilliant. I could scissor cut him and he'd stand there and be scissor cut the whole time. But yeah, he wouldn't go near clippers and I, wouldn't, I didn't even dare try him with a hairdryer. But that's Aww. a little bit of our fault. We didn't introduce him to those things. Not that I'd ever thought about hair drying a dog until we did pooch perfect together you know and all the things you'd seen but um yeah the clippers thing probably if we'd started that from a very early age it could have yeah. done it but um i mean my dog my dog will jump on the table he comes into the salon he walks in he jumps straight on the table and he's looking at me he's like come on then come on give me a haircut and i'll i don't have to put him um time up with anything you know with the noose and that we use the know, term yeah um, we saw that with the poodles during Pooch Perfect. Is yeah. they just jumped on the table and stood there, and then you exactly yeah, what was coming right. because it's something that happened so regularly for them. And some of those other dogs that we obviously had in the program that we'd seen, it clearly hadn't been to a groomer every six to eight weeks and got used no. to those things. Um, the problem is, is that we were talking about. I remember talking about to the producers about this, and and there's lots of TV shows and rehoming shows on telly at the moment and they don't ever really say about the uh amount of grooming that these rescue dogs need like what you were saying earlier it's the most amount of money that a person's going to spend on a dog's lifetime if it's hair bearing yeah is is a groom and so surely it must these people must realize that we are skilled it's yeah. a hugely skilled thing I don't, I don't think in all honesty that they know well, firstly, explain what hair, hair bearing is, because I genuinely don't think that people realise that their coat continues to grow. I don't yeah, so, so a hair bearing dog is a dog that, whose hair grows and grows and grows. A yeah. fur bearing dog is a, a dog whose hair grows to a predetermined length and then yeah. stops. And that's just, that's it. That's the difference. So, yeah. for example, a German Shepherd would be a fur bearing dog because, you know, you don't they don't keep growing but you know, you get an Afghan hand hound that will just keep growing and growing and growing, and that's a hair bearer. But you know, there are exceptions to the rule because there's combination coats as well. So there are some dogs, for example, 
Cocker Spaniels, they would be a combination because they'd be fur on the back and then their legs are hair. Okay. And it's interesting as soon as you start getting in these mixed breeds. And so I think when people go and get a puppy, I don't think it even registers in their mind what type of coat they have. They're going yeah, for hypoallergenic a lot of these people, aren't they? So, but again, <laughs> which, is, that's, which that's, doesn't exist. That's, that's a myth anyway, isn't it? Yeah, it's a myth because, you know, Labradoodles, Labradors shed. You know, they're yeah. fur bearers. And it, if, and you know, if you look at a Labradoodle, some of them are really poodly and some of them are really labby. So it depends on what side yeah. of the fence the coin drops. And in, well in Wellie's litter, uh, which was a Bedlington crossed with a strange, like a, a mixed terrier, bull terrier, um, half of them had a basically a, a short, um, not Bedlington coat, basically that thick wiry, and, and half of them <laughs> with a Bedlington coat. And we got stuck with a Bedlington coat. So... But it's um, stuck with it. I didn't just didn't really realise it, so I didn't know enough yeah. about coats back then. And um, and I think it because yeah, it it does doesn't get talked about unless you're obviously within your industry for this year and those who yeah. are showing dogs who know those kind of things. But but know, it's something that as a vet, I'm going to hold my hand up and when I see my second vaccines and my first vaccines now, I'm going to talk about it more because. Is it something that comes to the forefront of my mind every time I see a new cockapoo pu uh, like puppy? It it isn't. Um, obviously, when I see them later on and I see that they haven't been maintained properly, it comes to my mind. But it's not something that I kind of say you need to start going to the salon to get them used to it. Um, I do say look in their ears and look at their eyes and do all of this stuff and pretend that you're a vet so that they start to get used to being handled. But I'm certainly going to start telling them to go to the salon now. Um, yeah, so that's, oh, that's great. And you know, I'm really, really passionate about groomers and vets working closely together. And my local vet, Stephen, he's always popping into my salon. He'll phone me if he's got um, a cat that's been sedated. Yeah. Uh, and he needs he needs me to come up and safely shave it I can 100% do that if he feels oh. that it's better for the cat for me to come and do it or the dog for me to come and do it then that's absolutely we, we work together and that's what I really would love that's my vision for the country because I feel like vets and groomers have always been a little bit at loggerheads in fact the world and groomers have always been at loggerheads and I'm <laughs> on a on a sole mission to try and change the public's perception to make it, them understand that we we are looking out for the welfare of the dog always there well, and you know i think that, so I that think moves me on to the next point now which is which is about the regulation of groomers because at the moment there is no regulation of groomers in the uk is there no and i think that you started uh, groomers spotlight to basically push that point that actually qualified groomers and you have a, the Groomer Spotlight, if I'm right, is a register of qualified groomers. Is that right? Yeah. So the whole point of it, as an actor, um, there's a thing called the Actors Spotlight, and that's how we work. Because really, acting, if you're an actor, it's not really uh, regulated either. If you're an actor, you're an actor, you're not. You're not. And uh, if you are a good actor, you get an agent, you get your equity card, and then you get onto the Actors Spotlight, and that's how we get our work. And I, it got me thinking about um, a creative industry and, it, and the comparisons between the two industries uh, as an actor and creating a part and playing that part. It really is, um, it's passion and it's, it's creativity. It gets those juices flowing. And so does grooming, weirdly. 
so I saw these comparisons and I thought, you know, whenever I opened Facebook or any social media, there was always arguments uh, as to whether the industry should be regulated. And groomers would go at each other from both sides and never agree. And as a spectator to this, I was just thinking, you know, really, I think that groomers and us as an industry were missing the point because it's not about us and what we want. It's about what the the dog-owning public want. And I know, as a dog owner, I want the best for my pet. So Mm. I thought to myself, you know, if I was to come up with a register of people that have actually achieved the qualification, I think that people that own dogs would use it to find a groomer in their area. It's a no brainer because there isn't one. There's no register. You just have to go on word of mouth. And then you hear all these horror stories in the news about, you know, uh, dogs that have had their tongues cut and, and, uh, Oh no, I heard one the other day. I won't say where the source was, but or who the groomer was. I don't actually know who the groomer was. But um, for dogs that don't, uh, that dogs that don't like the hair dryer, you just stick them in the cage and point the point the hair dryer at the cage. <laughs> you know, it just gives us a bad name. And actually, you know, there are some amazing, unqualified, uh, experienced groomers out there that are brilliant. So I'm not yeah. vilifying anyone. All I'm doing with the Groomers Spotlight is trying to encourage those people to get a qualification because for those people, it'd be very easy to do. It's a fast track for them. They can just go on and they can get their their qualification. They can be assessed and it would be a very easy route for them. And that way it sorts, is the the expression that we, from the chaff? I can't remember what the actual expression is. Um, I, I feel like because what's happening in the world at the moment is it's very unpredictable. People's jobs are going and, you know, people are losing their jobs. Uh, Redundancy is hugely high and people are looking for an industry that they can just fall into that they think is very easy. And um, that's unfortunate because it's not an easy job. We just make it look like it is. And so what happens is these people get a redundancy payout and they open this amazing salon around the corner from my salon which you know is a bit of spit and sawdust but they, you know this, they were in a competition with all this, the radio <laughs> yeah exactly well exactly but you still got to go the right way I know, exactly, so they open I know. a salon they open a salon without any training because and they look at a youtube video yeah. but they've bought yeah. all these amazing um machines and equipment and then they they and then they ruin the coats that we've been working on as professionals for years and and that's at best so at worst a dog's getting injured or a dog's getting killed and unfortunately the other all the groomers are looked at in the same light and for me it's about trying to professionalize the industry so that we can be seen as a handshake profession not just a hobbyist profession now, in 2018, uh, so the licensing laws around um, boarding kennels and pet shops has changed. So the licensing of activities involving animals regulations came in. Do you think that the grooming salons should have been on that? I think it depends because with those regulations, it wasn't ever about someone saying that somebody else is good enough to do the job. It's more about the facilities and exactly. so yeah, but that's what that's what the licensing does for boarding for boarding establishments for pet shops for um for home daycare as it you know came into that um but interestingly you've got dog walkers professional dog walkers and professional dog groomers 
who were not included on that license. And yet people are putting the hat, you know, their dogs and their dog's welfare into the hands of basically what could be unqualified dog yeah. walkers and dog groomers. But, but then uh, but if is, the regulation gonna ask, is the regulation going to ask us, Jody, for our qualifications or is it just going to look at our establishments? Oh, well, uh, if you look at the licensing in the way that it does for the others, there is a minimum requirement for at least one person on the premises to have some kind of animal welfare qualification. In that case, yes, I do think we should have been we should have been on that bill. Because you could have you could have a salon similar to the way that you did. Um, but you could have a salon that you own. And as long as you've got a qualified person who is at least overseeing maybe apprentices or other people within the salon, as long as you have somebody with the knowledge working within it. Because, of course, the issue comes when you have a whole salon with nobody qualified who all think they know what they're doing because they've, you know, had dogs yeah. in their life. You know, that whole kind of, well, I know what I'm doing. I've had dogs in my life. Well, yeah, it doesn't work like that because qualification gives you structure and actually information about maybe and science. Yeah. But, I mean, to be honest, there are terrible solicitors out there, but they're still solicitors. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you can have, you can go on the groomer's spotlight and you might have a bad experience with one of our groomers, unlikely, but you might have a bad experience with one. You might not enjoy the haircut. You might not like them as people, but they're still, they still have an underlying level of knowledge and they yeah. still have that health and safety training. And that's what I... I'm passionate about I'm just you know it's just about those you know we were talking about Nelson's seizure earlier it's about knowing how to deal with that if it happens in your bath yeah <laughs> or in your and table. the other thing is I don't understand I presume that you obviously have to have indemnity insurance yeah but they don't ask for any kind of in and that's bizarre because you know, the difference of giving indemnity insurance to a qualified person wielding a pair of scissors um, and having, you know, a hot air blowing at a dog and all sorts of things like that where things could go wrong. To a qualified person, the risk is much less than if you are dealing with someone who's just doing it in their backyard. Um, well, I don't think you know, legally they have to have insurance then. You don't have to have insurance. No. Um, I completely agree. No. Well, I mean, if you if you're in a business establishment, I should imagine you've got to have some kind of public liability. But yeah. that's yeah. Uh, but that's, but that's, based on, but yeah, that's based on yeah. That's based That's not protecting the dog, though. That's public liability. No, no, that's it's the public, isn't it? Yeah. Based yeah. On protecting the people who come into your yeah. Place. So is no, that... we don't. Um, the strange thing is, is that also we, as the groomer spotlight directors, Julie and I have contacted several insurance companies to try and get a better deal for our our members and it's really hard and you it's weird because insurance is based based on risk right yeah. so yeah. if it's based on risk surely a qualified person is going risk. to be far less of a risk than an unqualified person just sheer the fact that to the fact that they've been trained so from a grooming point of view though they've probably ranked you in with similar businesses or what that what the insurance world would consider a similar business from a point yeah i'm sure they did public but facing. you know it is weird because they you know a lot of them won't uh cover creative grooming and so uh which is understandable but some will and some will use it as an add-on so if they can mm. add things on that they yeah. wouldn't usually yeah. cover mm. it's very it's, i don't get it anyway so going into 
going into creative grooming and segue let's go from there move, move this a little bit so grooming <laughs> competitions um yeah. and we kind of move now into the whole um uh, creative grooming side of it slightly controversial obviously we uh, we met each other with pooch perfect and being someone from outside of the grooming world coming into this kind of <laughs> i think I, I probably i was quite anxious coming into it about how we were going to get on as uh, we were going to clash because um, obviously, yeah, there was a, I had probably some preconceived ideas about grooming. You probably thought I was just coming on to say, you can't do this, you can't do that. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was, we learned, we soon learned, Jody. Yeah, and I think we did. But I think um, from a grooming like competition a point of view, actually, from what I learned like from tango. you, is, <laughs> from, from what I learned from you more is, is there, should there be some concerns about grooming competitions that aren't on television about some of the stuff that goes on? Um, that obviously, you know, because uh, from my point of view, how many welfare people do you have going to a grooming competition outside of the Just grooming me. world? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so from a welfare point of view with grooming competitions, do you see some issues that should be addressed? Well, no, I don't really, because the majority of the groomers that are at these grooming competitions are usually incredibly skilled and highly respected in their field so and again we're all animal lovers so if there was ever anything bad going on it would be called out or disqualified or moved away yeah we, i think so I, I don't actually feel that there's anything to worry about there the only thing that um we're very good at in this country is making sure that we're safe when it comes to creative in competitions right. simply because it never got as far as it did in the states and when the NAPCG got involved here and when I start to judge people know that it's safe so that's why I get used so much to judge in the UK because people can guarantee that I'll make sure they're using safe products and with regards to the safe product stuff do the competitions have rules for those? Do you have to use safe products? Because yes. <laughs> I'm gonna, uh, uh, because there are still some non-safe products being used, aren't there? And I'm going to point towards hairspray as one. Yeah, so it's hairspray is the big one, and that's the one that I find is tricky. Um, there are pet-labeled hairsprays, but hairsprays used in the dog show world as well as the dog groom world they'd never say it was but it you know it is i've seen it and um it's whatever gives the best result on the day and so the best thing to do is to keep pet labeled and if i if, if i'm judging the class then they'll have to use a pet label product but i can't judge everything and everyone's got a different opinion so if if there are people from the show world that think it's okay for certain products to be used then then that's the judge has the final say. But it does say in, the, in all the rules of all the, the shows that I've ever worked on that pet-friendly products have to be used. Yeah. So it really is down to the judge that's judging the class to make sure that it's policed properly. And do you think that that should be the same at not just grooming competitions, but dog shows such as, and obviously everyone knows Crufts, but there's a lot of dog shows that go before Crufts to get those dogs to Crufts. So. Well, dog shows say that they don't allow any products to be used. So it's, it's funny because this really goes to, towards the cold creative grooming argument as well. Because it's forced underground, 
it's hidden. Mm. So what happens in dog shows, as far as I can tell, <laughs> is that people, you know, if people want to get that amazing Westy head up, they'll take it out the back, put a load of product in, fluff it up, make, it, make sure it's lovely and round, and then they'll take it back onto the ring. And sometimes, you know, you can see a Westie maybe walk across the ring and there's a puff of chalk that goes behind it because it's been chalked to make it look, you know, as white and as, as fluffy as it can possibly look. But in the rules, and as far as the kennel club's concerned, it's absolutely banned. You can't use so a product. That should be down to a judge to be checking that then, shouldn't it? Yeah, so it's all about, it's just all about the rules of the show and making sure, and the judges making sure and enforcing the rules. And that's basically, and that's why I feel quite strongly about the whole creative grooming thing, not being hidden, mm. being shown to be, a, a, but making sure it's in a safe way, uh, shown safely, because the minute you hide it and say it doesn't exist is the minute you, you push it underground and you don't see it anymore. And yeah. I personally would rather police it from a visible point of view than not. I, I feel quite strongly because obviously I hadn't really kind of contemplated too much of this creative grooming because it hasn't really entered my, you know, realm until now, yeah. until watching um, Pooch Perfect and things like this. And it really made me think because my gut reaction straight away, my my straight away reaction was I suppose a little bit like Jodie on the anxious side of oh well is it necessary like mm. you know all of these mm. sorts of things however I would much rather a dog was creatively groomed in a non-harmful and safe way and um and we had pleasure and the dog had a happy experience than a dog was forced to be bred to a mutilated state to then be paraded around a show ring and then mm. it lives with those detrimental problems for its entire life. So to hide something, to push something underground that is, um, it's only in the moment, the creative breed, like you say, um, grooming, it, it washes out. Um, it's not harmful. The dog has a good experience. It is a spontaneous and instantaneous kind of event. Whereas breeding a dog to look a certain way is a lifelong thing for a dog. So I think it's ludicrous to almost say that creative grooming is harmful if it's done safely well as long as it's done yeah like you say I think the, the, the key the key word is as long as it's done safely and so yeah. again it's about education and for groomers that are partaking in creative grooming before they do they need to have the knowledge behind them and I see lots of people say oh, I'm going to try this this week, I'm going to try that this week. And I'm like, why? You know, you don't know anything about it. You've not thought about what you're going to do. There's so much to consider. Character, you know, skin, coat, whether or not, if that dog doesn't like attention, let me tell you, as soon as it's got any colour on it or any creativity with it, that dog's going to get attention. So if you've got children running up to it and putting their hands in its face and it doesn't like it, then it's more likely to have a reaction to that. And those are the things that you have to consider before you do anything creative. And uh, well, I say, carry because on. It's, it's interesting about the creative because obviously from a groomer's point of view, creative is going beyond the breed standard and pet trims, right? So it's basically using your creative mind to come up with uh, a cut and a groom on a dog for the purpose of uh, an image that you've, you've created creatively. But actually in a way, every groom is like that to a point exactly so even, so it is, no, it's every even your breed standards 
are yeah. creative. So they They're still run groups. the same. They still run exactly the same risk. So it was interesting. That's with, what with the Pooch Perfect program that people criticised the creative challenges far more than the breed standards. Oh well, I want to see the breed standards, but the creatives are unnecessary. Well, I mean, the poodle is the perfect example. That you, it was the European Cup. It's called or the. Um, the, had in the, the, continental. The, continental the continental the continental cut is about as creative from an image point of view as anything but it's not yeah. considered creative is it that's considered breed standard yeah and that's that's why i find it quite hard to take sometimes because people have to understand that the world changes and goes through cycles so back in the day you'd use a poodle to retrieve something from the water that was the whole point of it and so they as the VT said, it ties, so they put a ribbon around its tail and, you know, you can see it. But that's for work, right? And in those days, there was no media. There wasn't really, you know, Facebook and all this money that people spend on advertising and marketing. And there's a whole, so as we've gone through the years, a, a brand new industry has been created that demands dogs to do stuff for it, just like, hunting or retrieving a fowl from yeah. a river you know the the media industry want stuff dogs to do stuff for it too so to, i don't see what the difference is between a dog working and retrieving fowl from water than standing in a studio uh, for a for a, a photo shoot they're both they're both working for us as as humans as long as they get at the end of that day to go out and run around and have be a dog then i think you know well i don't see how anyone can say that one is more important than the other they're both working for the rights of the human and i think yeah. that you know uh, obviously you, you, i've my role has been brought into question with uh, with regards to pooch perfect and that you know as an ex rspca person i've gone completely against what everything the rspca stood for and actually, I don't. I actually agree with what they said, which is it's worrying, actually, how people might react to it. But that's got nothing to do with the grooming world. That's got to do with people's misunderstanding of their own animal. And actually, yeah. um, you know, going back to what we talked about is th there's no qualification to buy, to buy or purchase a dog. There's none whatsoever. Anyone can go and get one and have no understanding of looking after a dog whatsoever from from even how to feed it nobody asks you yeah. do you know how to feed this dog right and what it requires and what exercise it requires some do some don't but i was hopping back to the previous episode you know about a cat that i was trying to rehome and i got refused you know because i i have a young child in the house um, and we live by a road but none of the questions were do i know how to provide for the needs of this animal so it's <laughs> yeah, it's it comes with crazy the as well. Is yes, it is worrying. But what's more worrying, not because of programs like Pooch Perfect, um, who are showing an you know an industry that's highly skilled, and that's what it did do, showed a highly skilled and actually what it requires to be able to do that job. But actually, what we need to do is educate people before they go and get an, an animal as to actually yeah, because and also educate. I think it's, it's worrying what how they might treat that animal. But it also highlighted the fact that all the people that work in the industry need to work together for the greater good rather than vilify each mm. other for 
I, you know, I, I can look after a dog better than they can look after a dog, or this vet doesn't know what they're talking about, this groom doesn't know what they're talking about. We all need to come together as an as pet industry and go, actually, we've all, we're all looking to try and make the best for, we're all um, working hard to try and make the best for the, the dog that's in our care. And that's what we should all be doing. Yeah. That yeah, and I, think the, the, I do think it's really interesting when it comes to um, having a dog that people need to understand what they need to do when it comes to the grooming side of it and that the um, image and objectification and creative is no not everybody can do that with their dog you can't you don't sit there but you don't sit there and watch ER right and go oh I think I'm going to go and operate when my you know when my friend gets sick it's kind of exactly although have you noticed just recently since since the whole pandemic thing you know you, if you go into a supermarket and you have to wear a you have to wear your face mask when you come out don't you just rip it off as if you've just done a like six hour operation you're like I, yeah. I literally feel myself like I'm in ER I love it I just rip mine off because my beard is itching too much to be honest <laughs> <laughs> you get used to that after a while JD <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what funnily enough talking of talking of dog styles and creative grooming it works the other way as well because nelson the one that's just had the uh, seizure when he was longer a bit younger he was really because he was quite badly abused when i first rescued him and uh, he didn't trust people and if anyone came towards him he'd definitely bite them there's absolutely no doubt about it and so I cut him to look severe so that children and no one did come up to him. So I gave him a really severe eyebrow and a beard. And he was, you know, he looked, his, even though he was little, because kids love a cute white dog. Mm. And I wanted him to look a little bit meaner. So I made, so I cut his hair so that he wasn't as attractive to children putting their hands towards him. And it, so it worked. That's amazing. It's a good idea, right? Well, it's a brilliant it's a really, idea. And it's, it's actually really, because really the, the flip idea. side of that, that does, because that, that, there is a problem with dogs and uh, image. I know from certainly brachycephalic dogs, uh, because of the pushed up nose, it looks like they're snarling. And actually to other yeah. dogs, they can be quite standoffish to a brachycephalic dog because it looks like they're permanently snarling. Oh, that's interesting. And uh, so this, you know, there's, there's some real issues over... Um, kind of dog communication and that restriction. Obviously, poor old um, uh, Yolo is going to find out in her years to come with her brachycephalic look, isn't she? That and, uh, yeah. So um, I don't. Know. But the weird thing is, that you would think though that the dog would give off different signals rather than just the the, the, the noise. You because in my like just from looking at brachycephalic dogs. Just thinking of pugs, for example, they're usually quite excited and happy, even though they're going. <laughs> so you would say it's interesting that another but it's dog. Not, uh, but it's not just the noise they make, but because of the way the face is scrunched up. Because of course, in a uh, snarl, the, the snap scrunched, but theirs is permanently scrunched up. So the two yeah. combined together. Um, <clears throat> uh, I know. I shall let you know how she gets on. I'll let you know if she gets. <laughs> We're out and about. Well, I think the problem with pugs is they don't really understand what's going on anyway, do they? Because their eyes are pointing no. in two different directions. I've got, so I've got just... a rescue pug, Stuart. Oh, I love them. 
Yeah, she came in at death's door at seven weeks old um, and I took her home and fell in love with her. So, Oh, good for you, Hen. You're my new hero. Well, not really. <laughs> well, look, Stuart, thank you very much indeed. I think um, we've probably tried to cram a hell of a lot about grooming into the short space of time that we've had. What would you be your, your primary advice to anybody getting a dog? Uh, go and meet your groomer, find them on the groomer's spotlight and uh, meet them, talk to them because they can give you an awful lot of advice. Uh, I think a dialogue with the vets, the groomers would be brilliant. But, you know, if you're if you're if you're a new dog owner and you're considering what to do about their hair, just go and talk to your groomer. Don't ask your friends. Don't look online. Go to your closest professional qualified groomer and have a chat with them. And does it matter what type of dog you've got? No, they all need grooming. There we go. Because I think there are some people out there who've probably got some short-haired dogs who go, well, my dog doesn't need to go to a groomer. But they well, you know, for me, you know, actually just before we go, it's really important that short-haired dogs get groomed as well. Because even though they've, they've got short hair, we've got our hands on dogs all day, every day. And you don't always go to a vet, but you, if, you all, if you make a regular appointment to a groomer, I can tell if something's not right. I can't diagnose, I can't say what it is, but if there's a lump or a bump that isn't normal, a groomer will know because they have their hands on dogs all day, every day, and they touch every single part. So- And it was amazing, it, wasn't then, it? Jim Pooch Perfect. Bolu came in and he had hands on every single dog that went to that studio before it was groomed. So he went over it with the dog, but after or halfway through their grooms, once they'd had a load of hair, nearly every groomer and some were, some had more than others were always like, Bolu, I found a lump. Bolu, I found this. Bolu, I found that. And you come over and check it because while all the hair's on it, you don't notice it. So, um, but obviously as a groomer, you're so used to seeing all of those things, as you see, you can point them out. And if you're not pointing out to the vet, obviously in the studio, you can point it out to the owner. We found this while you were here. You may want to get this checked out by your vet. Yeah. And actually it might be something that's always been there on that dog, but if it's not normal, they will never know. So if I, you know, for example, Molly, my Bichon, she's got a floating rib and I know that it's not normal. It's not normal for another, like it feels like an extra, it feels like a lump. Mm. So, you know, it's those sorts of things. I've found numerous cancers, thank God. Not that I would ever say they're cancers, but I can tell if it's not right. And there was once a dog that came in and it's his, his nails weren't touching the floor. He was walking sort of like this. And I was like, that's not right. There's definitely something going on there. Cancer in two of the toes. Oh. And, you know, it was caught very quickly and dealt with. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Because and people course, often I mean, won't go to a... the vet until it's too late. Well, exactly. the other thing is, is that, of course, we, we get the other end of the spectrum, which is we get dogs that are, you know, potentially unhandleable they haven't been to a groomer before or um they've had bad experience you know we get the bad experience dogs that have had you know a terrible time and will not allow anyone near them and we end up doing lots of sedates to basically just clip out the dog um give it a full a full yes. clip out um, and it's you know and we we get that and um we have to 
obviously do it because it's for the welfare of the dog they need to have yes. their you know um but it's come from a bad experience so that advice to get them straight in so that you don't end up in that situation where you've got a um, a dog that's freaking out that needs to be sedated and clipped out we can usually get no we can get through that we can we can work with the dog but the owner has to has to go by our rules you know i would say every time you walk past come in i'll give you a treat and it'll go again so that it doesn't feel like it's always there for a horrible time sometimes it can be positive you know we've got many dogs that have we've changed their minds over the years <laughs> well thank you very much for joining us Stuart it's been a, a, an absolute pleasure and always an education as well if thank you, you for stay, having me stay and listen to our new stories maybe you'd like to comment I'd love to only, uh, only quickly so um, our first story this week uh, actually um, is is moving on from a story that I've talked about last week, and it's the um, the ear cropping campaign of um, cut the crop. Uh, oh yeah. Um, so I understand that the petition has now reached beyond eighty two thousand signatures now, but the story this week was actually um, of Rita Aura's new video featuring a uh, a pit bull with cropped ears. Sadly, it's hit the end. I did not know that. So, yes, um, her new music video Gosh. has sadly got a pit bull in it with a crop tear. So, um, it's really disappointing. Um, that she probably didn't even realize. She I bet didn't she didn't even realize. So, no. I'm going to do a bit of uh, self promotion here. If you're out there making a music video or any other type of film uh, and you need some advice with regards to um, not only the welfare of the animals that you're using, but possibly some of the ethical issues that might raise up, then um, just give me a yeah. call. The Animal Welfare Consultancy is here to help you. So I, I hope that she uh, learns from this experience. I hope a lot more people learn from this experience. We do not want to see cropped-eared dogs um, at all, really, but certainly not in pop videos or um, at the forefront of media that are influencing too many people. So no. Do you see? Do you, yeah. Do you see many cropped-eared dogs coming in at the moment? Because there seems to be an increase. No, not in the UK. Definitely not. I think we've had maybe one. They. It's funny because they always they say, "Oh, well, I want to book my Labrador Staffordshire Bull Terrier cross in," and it's a pit bull without any shadow of a doubt. <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, well, is this?" Yeah. And uh, I've had one that's come in with a uh, with cropped ears before. The worst thing is, is they come in with these great big massive chains, and they want this dog to be. A scary, horrible dog, and it comes in. It's just as soft as butter, and just lovely. Yeah. And you just, it's just, uh, it's sad. They're, they're quite, you know. I know the reputation, having dealt with a lot of pit bulls over my career, um, and they're scary from a point of view. If you've got a dog, and it's one that's been basically bred to fight dogs, then they're scary. But um, oh yeah, they're strong. They're, they're living also, strong dogs. But they're also were bred not to be vicious towards people because you can't no. really, um, even in the fighting world, you don't want a dog that attacks the, the people who are owning the dog. So yeah. um, they're usually soft as anything and as most dogs should be. So really sad, but um, yeah, cropping is, uh, it's going to stay in, and hopefully we'll get some, um, uh, a guest on to talk more about that campaign in the next few weeks and, and the horrendous kind of implications it has for a completely unnecessary mutilation really um the next story i have 
related to dogs, but sadly, and obviously down in London, you may have seen this, Freddie the Thames Seal. Did you hear about this, Joe? Oh, my God. It's literally, they were talking about it on LBC the other day. Mm. And so Freddie I the Thames was... Seal was a, uh, was a seal that basically made himself a home in the Thames, uh, up near Hammersmith, I understand. And unfortunately, uh, he got attacked by a dog. Um, uh, the woman was a barrister. She, she was a barrister, the woman that owned the dog. Oh. And uh, she was very, very well educated. There were signs all over the walkway that she was on saying that you have to keep your dog on a lead. And she didn't. And the dog attacked the seal and killed it. Well, it didn't kill it, but it mauled no. it to, uh, to injuries so bad that um, yeah. when they took it, they rescued the seal and took it to a, a rescue centre, but it had fractured its flipper and dislocated its flipper. Um, there was a vet on site, weirdly, that was out running or something that gave attention. Yeah, and, and uh, British no, Divers can... Marine Life Rescue, basically, uh, medics treated the wounds, but um, unfortunately couldn't save it. But I think it's, it, you know, and actually poor old Freddie um, had already gained public attention because he was rescued after a fishing lure got caught in his mouth. So unfortunately, this is wildlife coming in contact with human activity and coming off worse. Um, She's not being charged. The lesson of anything is don't let your dog off the lead if it's going to go after wild animals. And, and do you know what? And those also, dogs, someone made a really... Dogs are. Somebody, somebody did make a really interesting point, though, Jodie, um, because they were saying that when you're out with your dog, and I do this, and I'm sure that you guys will do it, is you're always looking ahead. You are always, as a dog owner, you're always looking to see what the, the next hazard might be. So yeah. as I'm walking, if I'm walking Ralph, if he's off the lead, and you know, I'm making sure there's nothing around, you know, he wouldn't ever go off and do anything anyway. But you know, you can never guarantee that, can you? So I'm always, I've always got it at the back of my head. Is there a car around? Is there another person around? Is there another dog around that he's not gonna like? Um, and she obviously just wasn't doing that. I just, no. I mean, to, it, it's a risk full stop to be walking your dog off the lead in London. When you've got signs up, as you say, uh, warning you of the danger of basically the seal around, but it's not just a seal. If that, if that dog is running after a seal, it's probably going after cats, other dogs. You know, it's that dog, just keep your dog on a lead. But people are in complete denial about their dogs being dogs. Um, mm. You know, they they think that their dog is an extension of their themselves. Um, you know, and they wouldn't attack a they wouldn't attack a seal. So my dog won't attack a seal. Um, and you know, we we get it all the time at the practice. Oh, um, they wouldn't. They they won't bite. They won't bite. They might growls a bit. Growls a bit. Did snap at, <laughs> did snap at the vet last time, but doesn't bite. <laughs> you know. Yeah, won't hurt. Oh, Very sad. Poor old Freddie. Poor old Freddie had to be put to sleep due to his injuries. But um, oh. please, people, keep your dog in the lead if it's going to run after wildlife. Our next story yeah. is slightly nicer, which is the walrus that turned up in um, on the Welsh coast. So um, there was a walrus that basically turned up on, on the Pembrokeshire coast. It had already allegedly been spotted in Ireland. Um, mm -hmm. And I've heard some funny stories about how it got there this week. Um, it took a ride on an iceberg all the way down there. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, how it got there, I don't really know exactly. But yeah, something to... Um, it's not the first time it's happened, I understand. But um, And what's going to happen to this walrus? Oh, that, well, hopefully, if everyone leaves it alone, it'll um, it'll make its way back home. <laughs> oh, 
I love yeah, walruses. No gonna... Yeah. So, um, so sweet. Yeah, I know. Really cute story. That. So, um... Henrietta, are you thinking of having? Henny, are you thinking of having a walrus to go with your little new pug? Well, I think <laughs> I think it probably would match the pug. I agree. <laughs> The, uh, the advice sense, out there, right? if you see the walrus, was do not approach the animal. Keep a really safe distance. They are very, very sensitive. Um, so it's not available for rehoming then? No. <laughs> it says it's going to be pretty exhausted from all its swimming. It's probably going to be stressed out. It's not an environment it's used to. Um, well, this is why I'm a little bit concerned for it. Um, you know, I hope that... Well, I, I presume that there will be people obviously making sure that it's okay. Um, but how far do you intervene in this sort of situation? Okay, <laughs> tricky, tricky, tricky one. Wal the young walrus seen in Wales was about the size of a cow. <laughs> 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 well, I didn't do it. It's not exactly like you're going to go and pick it up, is it? So I think um, he, there was, his health seemed in uh, good, good nick, so... Hopefully he'll make his way home eventually. So, um, and the last story I just wanted to point up on because um, I got my timing wrong last podcast. It was Cheltenham Festival last week. Yes. Um, so in connection with a story we might be doing uh, maybe in the next podcast or certainly in the future, talking to your husband, Hen, uh, talking to Dougie about um, horse racing. Um, sadly, Cheltenham uh, hit the headlines again on the first day when a horse died, and it was King's Temptation. Um, big story. So this comes up every year, and I think it, this will take a, um, a full podcast. I think probably yeah, won't even delve into so. half of it, really. So it's a minefield, I think, when it comes to... I mean, they're quoting statistics of 200 horses a year dying in horse racing in this country, and... 60 have died at Cheltenham since 2000 and um, wow. I think it's probably uh, it, it, but what it doesn't say is how many horses are involved in horse racing which is thousands well, why, can I just ask a question why do they die is it the, is it because the jumps are too high um, um, no, it's not, look it, well that's that's the big debatable point isn't it is some people say that jumping at all is dangerous therefore you know, any jump is too high because if that animal ends up dying as a result of it. But this, this is, I think, is the full spectrum which we probably can explore, isn't it? Because you can own a horse, and your horse will, can die from an accident uh, if you take it out riding. Um, so, therefore, should you have a horse? Um, the weird thing for me, though, is that surely someone must be looking at it and going. Right, there's 60 horses that have died since 2000 at the Cheltenham Festival. What have they died of and where have they died? And if it, and if it is after a big jump, then surely there must be a brain within that community that goes, let's lower the jumps or let's get rid of the jumps and we can still have the festival. It just means it's the fastest horse. Or well, we can halve the amount of horses. It becomes flat racing then, doesn't it, Stuart? <laughs> but if it, all right, but if, or you have half the amount of horses, but surely they've yeah. got to limit the risk. Like, I don't get it. Well, I think this, uh, and this is the spectrum. This is the spectrum. Yeah, this is the spectrum of opinion, isn't it? And I think that um, it goes back to interesting what we're talking about, similarly with dogs, is why do we have horses? We have them to, for our entertainment. And, uh, you know, horse racing is blimey, it's one of the oldest the oldest sports out there isn't it and it's uh everything is run by money and of course 
betting comes into into horse racing as well and so it's a, a beer moth of a beast that has to to try and shift opinion with regards to that yes welfare has to come into it and i and i'm pretty sure the british horse racing association will say welfare is very much at the top of their agenda and i think taking a single statistic about uh, as this uh, newspaper article has done doesn't reflect how many horses are involved i'm not saying that it's right that we've lost 200 horses a year or that 60 we've lost 60 at cheltenham um because actually that's you could say that's 60 too many the reality is it's a much bigger um kind of world than that in which we're talking about but um, it, it brings to the forefront again man's use of animals at the end of the day why have we got them and is it necessary if you didn't have horse racing how many horses would be out there and you know it's like greyhound racing great greyhounds make amazing pets but they're not the most popular because everyone just thinks they're a dog that goes off sprinting and chasing everything and, it's and also the they don't talk about how many greyhounds are put to sleep from injuries yeah how many yeah i mean i'm gonna be honest and say that my anatomy dog um at the royal college was a we all had race we all mm. had greyhounds um and actually how they, many greyhounds and actually how many greyhounds and horse uh, and racing horses uh, are actually lost they're not injured at all they just don't make the grade so yeah and yeah and that's probably yeah. a bigger problem there's probably far more horses and greyhounds that are basically put to sleep or you know because they just don't make the grade not because they I actually think no I actually I'm not 100% sure that I agree with that I I think that you think more horses are put to sleep because they don't make the grade there are lots of lots of racehorses out there that are um, taken on by people that are not put to sleep don't think it's as many as you think I think well Dougal might touch on that a bit but um, I don't think it's as bad as you hopefully think I hope so. Yeah. You know what I realised the other day, for the first time ever, I realised for the first time ever that, that, that horses are vegetarian. A vegetarian. I know that sounds like a, <laughs> I know that sounds like the most ridiculous thing, but I was talking to a friend of mine, and I suddenly realised they like, hey, don't they? Don't they're massive, and yet they live on, they live on like grass. Yeah, but just think, I mean, like, if we're going to extend this, just think elephants are the same, Stuart. It's amazing. Stop it. That's just not right. It's crazy. How do they get from life without meat? Cows? Cows. Cows. I mean, I don't even get me started about their stomachs, because I just... Mind blown. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Meat-eating horses. That's a, a different thing. Well, look, um, so, yeah, that, that purpose of that story was it will hopefully lead us into our future pod about horse racing, uh, whether they eat meat or not, um, and um, the whole ethics behind it. And, and we'll take a closer look at that with man much more knowledgeable than me and your husband. And, um, so, but not quite as knowledgeable about horses as I am. Well, no, right, I no. mean, you're the go-to there, Stuart, aren't you? Thank you. 
So uh, before we go, I must remind everybody, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if you like what you hear, please um, hit subscribe, um, put a nice rating up for us, uh, tell all your friends about it and spread the word about this podcast. Uh, if you have any questions for us, we have an email, which is askthingswiseandwonderful at gmail.com. Um, pop us down a question, we'll do our best to answer those. Um, there's a Facebook page, All Things Wise and Wonderful. And um, yeah, uh, we look forward to hearing you next time. Um, I just must say thank you very much indeed, Stuart, for joining us. Um, You're welcome. Thank you for having pleasure. me. Thank you for having me. Um, Hen, we will see you and speak to you again very soon. Yeah. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.